If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. tuning in and welcome to the July 19th 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine out front and out loud since 1974 striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S+ communities I'm Frances O'Brien in Los Angeles welcome tonight we look at two favorite films to stream God's Own Country and Tiger Orange we recall Steve Pride's visit to the home of Harry Hay and have a sit-down with Don Kilhefner, co-creator of The Radical Fairies. But first, Zachary Drucker is an independent artist, cultural producer, and trans woman who breaks down the way we think about gender, sexuality, and seeing. She has performed and exhibited her work internationally in museums and galleries. She joins Los Angeles drag diva Miss Barbecue in conversation. I'm Miss Barbecue with writer, producer, performance artist, and close, close soul sister, Zachary Drucker. Hi, Miss Barbecue. <laughs> Hi, Zachary. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here. We're having like a leisurely chat <laughs> as if we were just sitting around the table at my house. Having tea like, like we've done before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When did you know that you were trans? What was the moment? You know, I think that it meant different things to me at different times. When I was really young, three, four years old, some of my earliest memories are of dressing up in my mom's clothes and of selecting her clothes for the day as she was getting ready to go to work. Kind of like having great excitement about what was mom going to wear? How was I going to put her outfit together? As I reached five, six years old, kindergarten, I think those are the years when I started to realize that that was different than the way the other boys were. But I had a lot of female cousins that I was close to. I was a creative kid. And then I discovered the word transgender when I was 14 years old. I shoplifted a copy shoplifted. of yes, a copy of <laughs> Kate Bornstein's Gender Outlaw, which had come out probably a few years before that in the mid-90s. And when I discovered the word transgender, I realized that it was a answer to a question that I'd always had. And ever since I was a kid, people would ask, are you gay? Or, you know, there was always this sort of assumption that it was about my sexuality or who I was attracted to, because there was no awareness of trans people. I mean, trans people were like so far on the margins that you saw trans folks on talk shows, you could see them, you could identify them and know that they were out there. 
without it being a part of your actual physical reality. So the breadcrumb path to finding myself as a trans person, I think, in a lot of ways started with Gender Outlaw and Kate Bornstein. And I've always really subscribed to her ideology of making your own rules and inventing the thing for yourself because there are more than two options. And as a creative person, as an artist, I always felt I could take liberties inventing who I wanted to be. Part of that was being Zachary Drucker and not feeling pressured by an external world where maybe there wasn't as much space for us to sort of create room for a different way of being. And then I lived as a gender-fluid person, gender-nonconforming person for 10 years, and I started testosterone blockers when I was 22, 23. I think that was when I started the kind of incline towards having a more feminized self. Well, I met you right at the crux then. Mm -hmm. When did you know this is what I want to do as an artist? Well, I used that anecdote of dressing up as the beginning point of my art career. Because what I would do is I would dive into this chest of dress-up clothes and I would come up from the basement and I would have on like my mom's old prom dress or like a dance costume and my dad would take a Polaroid picture of me. And I had this collection of Polaroid pictures of me as these feminine selves. And I still think of that as my first art project. Photography provided a place for me to see myself outside of my physical reality, outside of the constraints of my physical reality. And then when I was a young teenager, I discovered photography again. And it was the thing that got me through high school, was spending time in the darkroom. With Transparent, how did you get involved with that project? When Jill Soloway started to write the pilot, she had met Reese Ernst, my collaborator, and fellow producer on Transparent at Sundance in 2011. It was around the same time, I think, that her parent came out as trans. And Reese's film was about a trans man and his girlfriend on a road trip. It was his thesis film as he was getting his master's at CalArts called The Thing. And a few months later, a friend of mine connected us again to Jill and said, Jill's writing this pilot about a transgender parent and you guys should connect and talk about it. And Jill picked up the correspondence right away and said, why don't you guys come over? Here's the pilot. She was still drafting it. But we knew pretty immediately that it was going to be major. And we've just been thrilled to be a part of it. And I remember when Jill had us over for lunch that day, she used the word collaboration. And we were both coming out of an art community for the most part. So that was exactly the right word for her to use with us. And she has a really non-hierarchical way of working. People really do contribute to the creative process. I heard about that on the, yeah. on the set and stuff. It's very collaborative with everybody from the grips to the lighting people. Everyone is able to put their say in something. Absolutely. And I've worked on the set before to know it was a very collaborative set. I mean, certain things needed to be in place, but it was a very collaborative set. Do you always factor, I am a trans person doing this project? Or do you see yourself as Zachary 
doing this project who happens to be trans. Whenever people ask me about who I am, I always start by saying I'm a human. Yes. And when people want you to kind of lay out your identity keywords, I always start with human, artist, trans person, a Jew, I'm Jewish. Um, That's a part of my identity. You know, all those things, yeah, play in. But I think that sometimes we get so caught up in seeking definition and finding solace in definition that we undermine our common humanity and the fact that we're all one. So I think always starting with, like, I'm a human, you're a human, you know, there's no way to draw boundaries between that. For me, being a gender nonconformist, I feel I'm in the middle of being gay or trans. And I've gotten it from both sides of, well, you're gay, just deal with it. Well, you're trans, take your hormones and be quiet. And I'm like, no, I'm gender nonconformist. I feel just as not understood, just as the trans community was. I feel like I'm not understood on why I stand behind gender nonconformist, mm-hmm. almost like how bisexuals are treated, you mm-hmm. know, just pick a side, mm-hmm. you know, kind of deal. And so I feel gender nonconformist is the next group that needs to be understood and talked about. Yeah. I don't always make those distinctions because I think that the fight for gender equality includes hundreds of years of feminism has led us to this point. We're, we're talking about gender equality for a larger group of people. In recent years, there's been more conversation about how masculinity is restrictive and how it prevents adolescent boys from like experiencing a full range of human behavior. Gender roles restrict so many people. We're all navigating that in our own ways. I think that being a gender nonconforming person is very difficult. And I did that for years, too, before I transitioned from, like, 14 to 24, basically. I was androgynous. I wore heels. I wore makeup. But I was not trying to present as a woman. I was presenting as exactly. a mix of, yeah, as a mix of signals. And I think that that is a more difficult position So I have a lot of admiration and respect for you and for you choosing to um, be comfortable in that space and to claim it. I think that social justice movements right now are gaining a lot of momentum. I mean, this is like the 60s all over again, and it's class consciousness that came from Occupy Wall Street. It's people recognizing that there is a huge disparity between the working class, the middle class, and the uber-wealthy. I think that people are fed up. And then I think with Black Lives Matter, we have a conversation around violence against black and brown bodies, the prison industrial complex, and how it's basically a new form of... Capitalism. Yeah, and it's a continuation of slavery, ultimately. So it's not just one group rising up. It's a consciousness throughout society, you see. Yeah, and I think that we also see this rise of white supremacy, of misogyny, Mm -hmm. of patriarchy. I mean, I think that we're kind of like 
in this carcass. Like, we're all standing in this carcass right now, and there are certain people who are trying to, like, pull us back into the 1950s. But once you see something, you cannot unsee it. We're moving forward, whether folks like it or not. And I think that in the United States of America, we have a social democracy where we're able to put our opinions and our perspectives out there. And it's actually our civic duty to do so. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're exercising Mm -hmm. our power as citizens just in doing this radio show. This is Miss Barbecue with writer, producer, performance artist, Zachary Drucker. How do you handle cis women who tell you you'll never be one of us? That sentiment is out there. And it's well publicized. I think that that's a really small vocal minority of, you know, they're called TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists. And last year, like, there was this article in the New York Times by Eleanor Burkett, and that was a big deal. And then there was an article in the New Yorker that was really kind of um, investigating what one of those communities is like and what their belief system is and what it's rooted in. But I think that we're all in this together. And all of the the women and feminists in my life are on the same page. I've never in my immediate circle encountered a woman who felt... I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that. There are certain people in my periphery, I think, who have been uncomfortable with me in a ladies' room or something like that. It has happened. But I don't think that we can give up our agency to self-define. I think that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. When you say like, and ultimately it's scarcity politics. It's this notion that you being who you are takes away some aspect of me being who I am. And the reality is that there's like space for all of us. Just because cis women exist and trans women exist, we're not compromising each other's positions. You're quiet when we hang out and we we kiki and stuff. But I look at your work and it's like, boom, 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 a major, major stuff. Thank you, Barbie. I mean, I enjoy the process. I enjoy working on things. I don't think I've ever done it for recognition. It's not a bad thing for people who do. My preference is always to fly under the radar, quite honestly, and just to not be bothered so I can continue doing what I'm doing. Well, that's changed. You know, the past Emmy, few years. Has past been few years with Emmy nominations and transparent and stuff like that. You're not under the radar now. Thank you so much, Zachary, for joining us. Thank um, you for having me, Barbie. I look forward I to the time of my life. <laughs> Let's look, do it again soon. Let's do it again soon. I, I look forward to sitting with you over many dinners over the years. For the rest of our lives. Soul sister. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, Steve Pride sat down with Harry Hay, co-founder of both the Mattachine Society and the Radical Fairies, in his cluttered living room. Before Stonewall, and now years after Stonewall, Harry Hay retains his vision that we as gay people have particular characteristics that contribute to society in a special way. I asked Harry, what in particular has held us back? Certainly up to Stonewall. We all lived under such fear. We lived in fear every day of our lives. 
here in particular, for instance, here on the Pacific Coast, we were always aware of the fact that any time you went to meet various people in places that we knew about that were supposed to be safe for us, or we would go to a bar that would be friendly to gay people on certain nights of the week, you never knew when you stood up to the bar whether or not the guy who was being friendly with you on your left or on your right wasn't a stool pigeon. A stool pigeon either from the police or simply to blackmail you. You didn't know. That was a chance you took. And you also knew something else, too, which other people didn't recognize. And that is that we were people who lived under stigma. And when you live under stigma, even in the United States, you're a second-class citizen, and you are guilty until proven innocent without a shadow of a doubt. Everybody else in the United States assumed that they're automatically innocent until proven guilty without a shadow of a doubt, not us. Because we would be being accused of having done things and we wouldn't know who the accuser was, and we didn't know what we were accused of. I asked Harry about his place in the modern gay movement. I'm generally known as the um, first person to bring up the issue of gay and lesbian people as being a cultural minority, a cultural political minority. And I did this deliberately in 1948-1949 because I suddenly realized that if we were going to organize ourselves, we had to organize ourselves based upon the principles of the First Ten Amendments of the Bill of Rights and ground ourselves politically in this country. And in order to do that, we needed to recognize ourselves as a cultural group. And it was so radical an idea in 1950 and 51 that in 1953, the Madison Society split up. And they split up, and when they split up, they threw me out as a radical because I had this absolutely outrageous idea that we were a minority. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with that. They just wanted to show that, that they were exactly just a slight sexual variation. Otherwise, we're exactly the same as everybody else. So I got thrown out because of that outrageous idea that we were a minority. Nineteen years later, when Stonewall comes along, everybody assumed that we had always thought we were a cultural minority since day one. So then 19 years, we had changed completely in the thinking. But at the beginning, it was the other way around. I ask Harry, what makes us unique as gays and lesbians? I can remember that when I was finally accepted on the track team, up until that time, I had been told I was a sissy and, and uh, get away from them, and they didn't want anything to do with me. Or if they had to do with me, I would get picked last to go on the baseball team, and then I got put out in right field where the boil never went. But eventually, you know, I always just say that sissies like me, there's, there are times when you just want to be wanted. And you do almost anything to get on the team and be wanted. And that didn't happen very often. But eventually you got to the place where maybe you found that you could do things on the track team. But I was sort of the despair of my track team because I didn't like to beat out anybody. I didn't like to win over somebody. If I were relaying, for example, and my competitor was behind me, I'd like to stop and help him. And so he did. And so he does. This has been Steve Pride talking with Harry Hay at his home in Hollywood. Thanks for listening. Harry Hay died in 2002, just a few years after this interview. Harry Hay died at 90 in 2002. Stay put. We'll be right back after this quick break. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. At age 30, he had an impressive sixth-place finish in the decathlon at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. His devotion to athletics began early, as his adoptive parents were vaudeville acrobats. Eventually, his high-profile career in medicine took him to faraway lands, even serving as a personal physician for a Saudi prince. In the early 80s, he landed in San Francisco, where he organized a gay sports event modeled after the Olympics. 
The first gay games took place there in 1982 as a sports event and arts festival, and to his credit remains one of the largest sporting events on the globe. Even on his deathbed, he held on to his adventurous spirit, saying, well, this should be interesting. Who said that? It was Dr. Tom Woodell, who died of AIDS-related complications in 1987. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you. Hi, this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am Are You. I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Frances O'Brien in Los Angeles, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Although we're coming out of lockdown, the streaming habit developed over the last two years will probably stick around, especially with great gay choices like God's Own Country. Steve Pride reports. God's Own Country is a stunning gay love story of both brutality and tenderness set in the rustic hills of West Yorkshire in the UK. I'm Francis Lee and I am the writer and director of God's Own Country. My name is Alex Carano and I'm an actor. I'm one of the two leads in God's Own Country. God's Own Country is primarily about Johnny Saxby, who is a Yorkshire sheep farmer, and he is running the farm on his own because his father's had a stroke and his grandma's quite old. All his friends have moved away to university or college or got jobs in towns, so he's very isolated, very lonely. He's shut down emotionally to be able to continue the work and keep the farm going. It comes to spring and all the sheep are going to give birth to their lambs, and he can't do it on his own, so his father employs a Romanian migrant worker who's in the UK looking for work to come and help him, and it becomes about their relationship. What inspired this? The starting point for the film was the landscape, really. So I grew up on the hills in Yorkshire. I left when I was 20. I escaped to London to train as an actor, but I could never get that landscape out of my head. It felt to have totally informed who I was emotionally and physically. And so when I was thinking about stopping acting and making film, it just felt like a place that I had to investigate, that I had to explore, and also to represent those people that I knew so well from that area. I've only been making film for about five years. I got to a certain point in my career as an actor where I was very dissatisfied. I'd fallen out of love with it years before. I wasn't doing work that I felt was challenging. I always wanted to tell stories, and I had always seen the world visually. I'd been an obsessive stills photographer, but I'd never been confident enough to actually say that or to sit down and write anything. And I got to a certain age and thought, I'm going to have to do something. So I gave up acting. I got a job in a junkyard and started to write, and I wrote three short films and self-financed those by the job in the junkyard. And while I was doing that, I had this idea. I was exploring this idea of landscape, as I said, and the people who live on this hillside that I know so well. And so I wrote God's Own Country on spec. I just sat down and wrote it. And I just wanted to 
show the world a little bit of how I see my world. Alec, when you first read the script, what connected with you? Why did you want to do this movie? It sounds like a lot of work. I think it was one of the most detailed scripts that I've ever read. Every single glimpse and every single gesture that you can see in the film, it was written in the script. That made me really connect with the characters and with the story. And it's a very beautiful and powerful story. Of course, after I read the script, I really wanted to meet Francis, and I got a chance when he came to Bucharest to audition to see 14 or 13 Romanian actors, and we worked together for half an hour or 45 minutes, and I really understood that he knew what he wants from this story and from this film. How did you prepare them for what was not just acting, but some very difficult and specific farm work? I worked with both Josh and Alec, who played the leads in the film, for about three months before the shoot. And we worked primarily on the characters in that period. We started from the moment they were born until the moment we meet them in the film. And we worked through everything, not just on a timeline, but also in terms of relationships, family relationships, friends. Every single little detail about these men we discovered and we learnt and we worked on. Right down to if they had sugar in their tea, what socks they preferred, everything. So by the time we got to the actual shoot and Alec and Josh came to the set, they were totally immersed in their characters. So then for two weeks before we started the shoot, I sent them to work on farms because I knew I never wanted a stunt double or a hand double. I never wanted to be pulled out of this film with fakery. So... Both actors went and worked on two separate farms and they worked long, solid shifts. And they would start early in the morning and they would end their shift late at night and they learnt to do everything. They learnt how to birth lambs, they learnt how to build walls. I mean, they literally learnt everything. It was really important to me that they embodied these characters both physically and emotionally. And there's such a impact that working that way has on somebody physically. They got cold, they got wet, they got miserable. And these were all great things for me, because that's what the characters were going through. Um, So again, by the time it came to shooting the scenes when they had to do the farm stuff, both of them were totally proficient, as if they'd been doing it their whole entire lives. So everything you see in the film is totally for real. You shot this chronologically too. Mm -hmm. Explain why. The script very much felt like each scene acted like building blocks in this relationship. I love actors, and I will do anything I can to support them, to get the very best out of them, and to facilitate their work. And so it felt really important to me that if I could shoot chronologically, that would really help the development of their relationship. It also added this extra benefit. The way in which the film is structured, Alex's character, Georgi, isn't there at the beginning of the film. So I could keep them apart. And as people, Josh and Alec wouldn't get to know each other very well. So they wouldn't have developed that comfortable kind of relationship. And for me, that was going to translate on screen. So the first time they meet on screen, not completely, but it was almost the first time they kind of had worked together. So there was that extra layer of kind of tension or nervousness that I thought would just add a little bit of extra something in the scene. Once the relationship between the two boys develops, I move them both into the same house and they built this beautiful, lovely, caring friendship between them. And again, that translated onto screen. So anything I could do to 
enable that to make it feel richer and deeper, I did. As an actor, did filming in this way make it easier or more difficult? No, it's a lot easier. I mean, you can't find this kind of work with many directors. And it was incredible to work on this film. I mean, all the process that we had and all the things that we had to do on working on farms and developing our characters from scratch and discussing about them and knowing their lives from the point they were born until we see them on screen. And this is the way I want to work and this is the way I love to work. And Francis did an amazing job in creating this environment and letting these things happen. At one point in the film, you put your arm inside a cow and later you birth a sheep. Yeah. At least now, though, you have something to fall back on if this acting thing doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Alec will be fine in the acting world. I'm hoping and I know he isn't going to need anything to fall back on. God's Own Country is being called the UK Brokeback Mountain. I'm really super flattered by the Brokeback comparisons. I think it's a masterpiece in storytelling, and Ang Lee is an incredible storyteller. And those are phenomenal performances at the heart of it. I think this film is different, and I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think Brokeback is, is about sexuality. It's about society's attitude towards sexuality at that very specific time. Whereas I do think this film is more about love and about the human condition, which feels slightly more universal, maybe. This has been a conversation with writer-director Francis Lee and actor Alex Sakurano about their film, God's Own Country. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. God's Own Country is streaming on Hulu, Hoopla, or for free with ads on the Roku channel. Another great LGBT film on the stream is Tiger Orange. Steve Pride reports. Growing up gay in a small town can be an isolating experience. But growing up gay in a small town with a gay brother, I wonder what that's like. And so does the film Tiger Orange. Do you ever even think about that? Well, of course I do. He really respected you, you know? Respect, right. I could just fit in better. Yeah, you had the pretend girlfriends, you were on the soccer team, and there was me, the drama nerd, getting high in the prop closet. When did you know? When you first got stubble. Come on. For real, I'm not being a creeper. I idolized you. I knew you were different from the other guys. I'm Mark Strano, the writer and actor of Tiger Orange. I am Frankie Valenti, the other actor in Tiger Orange. I'm Wade Gasque, director of Tiger Orange. It's about two estranged gay brothers who basically have come together after their father has recently passed away. And one brother, the older brother, stayed at home and basically helped dad run the local hardware store in the small town, central California. Younger brother left at 18, never looked back, and now that dad has passed away, younger brother shows up on the doorstep. And it's essentially a movie about the two of them kind of hashing out old stuff. This question is for our star slash screenwriter, Mark. What was the inspiration for the film? My dad actually died when I was young in high school, and I never got to come out to him. And so I kind of imagine this scenario of two gay brothers as sort of two halves of myself, of two different paths of actually telling him uh, and him having a poor reaction, which is sort of what Frankie's character, Todd, went through. And then the Czech character, which is my character, the reaction of 
knowing but not talking about it, but still being really close. So that was the spark of that. And I also wanted to write something that was sort of a metaphor for brotherhood of the gay community and two different sides of that. Johnny, tell me about the brother you play. My character is the antithesis of um, Chet. I left home. I was the wild one, wild and crazy, and um, you know, more outgoing and really upfront with my sexuality, almost to a fault. But you know, much like Mark, I had a lot of similarities in my personal life. My father passed when I was young, didn't know I was gay, knew I was gay, but never really kind of got that proper announcement. And, um, you know, my brother is kind of the opposite of me. He stayed home, not really to care for my father, but there's just a, a lot of similarities. It was very parallel. One thing that struck me watching Tiger Orange was that Todd and Chet's sexuality doesn't seem to be a big deal to the town folk. I wanted to make that point. Another reason why I set it in Central California was that there is a real easiness there to a really rural area. There is a, a lot of acceptance. And I wanted Chet's environment actually to be pretty easy in the sense of he's got support there. But sometimes people can't get out of their own head, get out of their own world. I mean, you don't see much of the father in this film, but Obviously, he had some issues, the father did, with both of his sons being gay. And so sometimes that could be enough to rock someone's world. And I know for myself, I come from a small town in New Jersey, though. You know, So we're talking a very liberal state, but it is a small town. And I did have a lot of acceptance. But, you know, it was tough with my dad. And like I said, I wonder where he would have taken it if I had come out to him or not. Even just the small conversations that we had. I knew he had issues with that. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. You could be surrounded by a lot of open people, but you may still have your own internal struggles about it. And that's something that Mark and I talked about a lot, actually, yeah. because I feel like I've seen that story a lot of, you know, the not able to come out and just this community around you that's very hostile. Not that that doesn't exist in America still, absolutely, but I feel like we're kind of at this place where we're beyond that a little bit, and I think more common now is where we are is this kind of unspoken policy with a lot of, like, Chet's character in a small town like this where it's, he's gay, yeah, people kind of know, but you don't talk about it that much, you know? You don't flash it out there. You don't throw your pride parade out on the street. You just try to blend in, and every and if, as long as you don't rock the boat, you're cool, you know? And I feel like that's very much where we are sort of in, in terms of yeah. our movement. I, I felt like it, it made the film more modern if we were honest with that idea. This is for Frankie and slightly off topic. Before Tiger Orange, you were a gay vampire on a show called The Lair, but you're best known for adult films under the stage name Johnny Hazard. How did you get into porn and why did you leave? I got into porn just pretty much the exact way that this film happened. It just fell on my lap. And I left because the industry just, the money was crap. You know, media in general has changed. There's just not a lot of money in a lot of different things. I mean, I'd like to say that I left because, you know, of this or that, but it was just, it was a business thing. Money just sucked. What's the biggest misconception about you? That I am this, like, hardcore, spit-in-your-face, kick-your-ass kind of guy. It's not entirely false. And what do you do now? You're an actor full-time, or do you do food? No, I, this is the only thing I've done. That and, and the lair, this is the, the only acting things that I've done. I'm living in Provincetown right now as a tour guide. 
And uh, once I get back here in the fall, I'm going to see how this gets played out. I'm going to see what the response has been. I'm going to see how this is going to unfold. And then from there, I'll figure out what happens next. What do you guys want the audience to take away from Tiger Orange? I hope it touches them. It's ultimately a story about family, about brothers, and that's very relatable to me. Sort of the stuff we put up with, the stuff that we go through that only our sibling kind of gets or understands that the, the way that we are with our siblings. And also, for me, it was very much the story of these two components of being gay, of, of this idea of wanting to fit in and be a part of a larger community and not have to defend ourselves or prove anything, but just be a part of something larger and not have to be gay, be the first thing that we are, or gay not have to define us. And then this other part of us that is loud and proud and wants to put it out there and is not afraid of showing everything. So I feel like that is something that as a gay person, we all kind of have. And it's always this little bit of a a dance uh, negotiation that we all go through. So the brothers very much represent two ends of that spectrum to me. So hopefully it lands. I hope that they just enjoy it, that they're entertained. I hope that they have fun with it. I think, you know, there's a lot of fun moments as well. And I want them to, you know, identify with their families. I hope they see things in there that are similar to their family, gay or straight. There really isn't a movie out there that kind of showcases the relationship between two gay brothers. And I want people to go, oh, I've never really seen anything like that. And also say, wow, it was done really well. This has been a conversation with Wade Gasquey, Mark Strano, and Frankie Valenti. Find more information about the film at TigerOrangeMovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Then our little dog cabin in the land. Tiger Orange is available to stream free on Tubi or Amazon Prime and to rent on Vudu or Apple TV. We'll be back with Don Kilhefner after this quick break. It's time for Who Said That? on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. This internationally known athlete was born in the U.S. in 1960. As a diver, he earned a silver medal and four gold medals in three Olympic Games, and won his first medal at age 16 at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. During a qualifying springboard dive, he cracked his head on the diving board and required stitches, yet won a gold medal in the main event. He officially came out at the 1994 Gay Games in New York City and disclosed his HIV-positive status. He once said, When you're a kid growing up and you think you're gay, you know that you're different. You're often teased, and it can really destroy your self-esteem. But sports can be great for building self-esteem. Who said that? It was Greg Louganis, widely regarded as the greatest diver ever. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Billy Bean, Major League Baseball's Ambassador for Inclusion, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Frances O'Brien, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Don Kilhefner founded and co-founded multiple gay organizations, including the Radical Fairies and the L.A. Community Services Center. 
Once Upon a Time, he sat down in studio with Wenzel Jones and Justin Elizabeth Sayer. Welcome, Don. Thanks for coming in. So I feel like I'm looking at gay history when I look across this table. I have been involved in the L.A. gay community for 50 years, so it's a chunk of history. Where do you want to begin? Is you, Harry Hay, the Manichean Society... Where? You've had your finger in every single pot. Well, I I think there are a couple of things I'd like to comment on, particularly is this is the 48th commemoration of the Stonewall Revolution. And we have to remember that it's about a rebellion that took place by gay and lesbian people and changed the course of our history. And how it manifested itself here in Los Angeles was with the creation of the Gay Liberation Front. And out of the Gay Liberation Front came the creation of a gay community that never existed before. Now, did you grow up in Los Angeles? I know. I grew up in Pennsylvania, a small town in western Pennsylvania. Uh, Went to college in Pennsylvania, spent three years in my early 20s teaching history in Ethiopia, came back, worked on a master's and PhD, and got involved in radical change in this country. And Stonewall came along, and it was just perfectly made for me. So your relationship with Harry Hay, now when did that begin? Harry and I were friends throughout the 70s. He lived in New Mexico, and whenever he would come to L.A., maybe once or twice a year, we would get together, carve out some time, and talk about what was happening in the gay movement. Both of us were very concerned because by the late 70s, it was becoming a more and more assimilationist movement, more and more uh, middle of the road, more and more reformist and law reform rather than revolutionary. And ever since that, Harry and I have been uh, uh, teammates. Now, was he part of founding the Radical Fairies as well? Yes, Harry and I founded the Radical Fairies in 1978-79. The first Radical Fairy gathering was out in the Sonoran Desert, in the middle of nowhere. We sent out a leaflet to every place we could think of in the United States. Churches, synagogues, community centers, glory holes. Wherever gay men uh, congregated, we sent a leaflet. And I, oh, my God. I love the thought of a sign on a glory hole. Oh, well, look. There's a weekend away. And over 200 gay men showed up from all over North America in this remote spot in the Sonoran Desert and the first Radical Ferry gathering took place. And what was it like? Did you have a firm idea of what you wanted to happen? Yes, it it was very clear what what the intention was. To move the gay community to the next stage of gay liberation. And by that I mean beginning to look at our identity. Who are we as gay people? What does it mean to be gay? The homosexual identity was laid on us by our oppressors. Heterosexuals labeled us as sexual beings, and we pretty much have accepted that and played it out. Harry and I were suggesting that there's a different contribution that we're making to society, and the Radical Fairies were primarily designed to explore what that difference was. Well, see, I, now, I, I've never been to a Radical Fairy, but when I first read about it in the early 80s, to me, it seemed like a very sexualized thing. Did it quickly change from the beginning, or was it just uh, that right? It, it is. It? A part of being gay is, is sexual. But our contention was that the tail was wagging the dog. And we very rarely spent time talking about the more substantial parts of being gay. Radical fairies are not anti-sexual, far from it. Mm-hmm. But we're exploring that there's more to us than just a sexual identity. 
And are there there's drum circles involved, or there's a whole spiritual aspect? Uh, the Radical Furries became an international gay consciousness, gay spirituality movement found all over the world. Uh, fairy gatherings happening everywhere. The one that Justin was talking about. Oh, sure. Yeah. I have friends that have gone to France and gone all wow. over. There. There's different places. And it's not centralized. It's very decentralized. And it's based on ground roots organizing. Local, wherever you are, that's where you organize. Now, I was reading an article of yours, and it made my little forehead ache because there was a concept. And I thought, oh, I'll just have him explain it to me. And it's your discussion of gay assimilation versus gay essentialism. Yes. What does essentialism exactly mean? If you look at gay intellectual history over the last 150 years, there are two major streams of of that. One is gay assimilation based on a sexual orientation model. You're homosexuals, and uh, that's all you are. And, you know, it's uh, while it's very delightful, it's hard to build an identity on fellatio or conolingus. And so that's one of the streams. A second stream is what's called gay essentialism. Walt Whitman is a part of this, and others. And gay essentialism says we're contributing something to society. That there's something that we're doing that makes us reappear generation after generation after generation. While our oppressors go down the drainpipe of history, there we are. The question is, what are we doing? Why are we here? What is that role that we're playing? And Harry and I were suggesting that the next wave of gay liberation was about self-identity. Not letting heterosexuals define us, but we defining ourselves. What do you think it is in the gay identity that puts a lot of us in nurturing fields? Um, Like nursing... I think of florists as nurturing in their own way. I mean, it just seems like that's I know intrinsic. What I, I know yeah. what, you're, what you're getting Thank at. Thank goodness you do. <laughs> E.O. Wilson, uh, the one of the deans of American scientists, a Harvard University professor, outstanding evolutionary biologist, has looked at this question. He's a straight man. Has looked at this question, and he said, quote, Homosexuals may be the rare carriers of the altruistic impulse in the human species. That we carry altruism. One of one of our roles is, and what you were talking about, nurturing, uh, healing, uh, nursing, physicians, is an altruistic role. We're not worried about which grade school our offspring are going to go to. We're worried about the well-being of society. That we're playing a very unique and important role in society. Then why don't societies, as a rule, appreciate that? Now, I've, I know I've read that in North American, Native American culture, there was actually a place for the third gender or something like that. <laughs> but, 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 but Yeah, but by and large, people don't appreciate the Well, there's something called religion. And one of the uh, uh, religions is Christianity, Islam, uh, Judaism less so, and they are religions that have been variantly anti-gay. There are governments that are anti-gay, state-sponsored violence against us. And so for several thousand years, there's been a program against gay people. Why? Uh, we're different. We upset the status quo. We are queer and walk different. We speak different. We act different. Uh, And for some people, xenophobes, difference is something to be destroyed. It's the opposite of assimilation, where we pretend we're just like everybody else. Nothing to fear about us. 
Yeah, yeah, I've got the director yelling at me. We, we can't really say those words on the radio. Oh, I'm so That's sorry. okay. I'll wash his mouth out with uh, I know. something. It's yes. the spirit of the moment. <laughs> I'm happy pride. I'm a potty mouth. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's part of the respectability yeah. that's taken over our movement yeah. is there's some things we can't talk about right. because we have to be respectable. Right. Gay yeah. liberation was just the opposite. Yeah. We're in your face. Get used to us. We're queer. We're here. Mm-hmm. We're not going anywhere. Yeah, because it, we do seem to finally be getting away of, oh, we're, we're going to be just like our parents, but gay. And that really uh, doesn't work. It's called work. assimilation. Yeah. Yeah. It's called gay assimilation. And the radical fairies were opposed to gay assimilation. It, it's the death of the gay spirit. It's the death of gay soul. It's the death of gay consciousness. Well, now, why does radical fairies happen in the woods? Why isn't there a more urban Harry version of it? I so felt that, that it was important it. that we get away from straight yeah. institutions. Someplace where we can be among ourselves, where there are no straight people around, and we can be ourselves without looking over our shoulders to see what they might be saying. And we found that spot out in the Sonoran Desert, uh, an ashram, uh, where the, uh, the guru was a gay man, uh, and just beautiful. And there were the nearest gay, uh, straight people were five miles away. Has there been a documentary on this? Because I almost feel like this is something straight people or people like me who hate camping should see, <laughs> should witness. <laughs> I, I, I think so. No, there has been no documentary on the Vatican Ferry. It's overdue for that. There has been on Harry Hay, and that's available. But if there's a filmmaker out there, you have a, an ideal subject here doing a documentary yeah. on the Radical Ferry. People are, I will say there is a kind of, there is a, a secret of nature to it. Some people get very nervous. Like there was a New York Times article about two or three years ago that I remember making way because people are like, oh my God, now everyone will know. They'll show up to our little enclosure. <laughs> you know, terrifying. But what it's about is gay consciousness. The radical fairies are about gay history, gay consciousness, gay spirituality. I'm Wendell Jones, and my delightful co-host is Justin Elizabeth Sayre, who I think of as being, what, a gay sprite? Sure. Perfect. And sure, I'd love to be that thin. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking to Don Kill Hefner, who founded the Radical Fairies, the LA Gay and Lesbian Center, and oh, so much more. So, welcome again. And I heard you talking with Justin during the break about elder gays. Yes. Which fascinates me more and more on a daily basis. So what are you doing exactly? Last 10, 12 years of my life here in L.A., I've been organizing around what I call a gay age apartheid, where youth and adults are separate from each other. Very rarely is there any communication. A couple of years ago at the California Men's Gathering, I was doing a presentation on elders, and maybe a hundred, over a hundred uh, gay men in the in the audience. And I said, "How many of you have any sustained contact with a young gay man under the age of twenty-five? Six hands went up. Out of a group of of a hundred, is that there's an age apartheid in our community. And part of my work in the last ten, twelve years has been trying to break that down." Part of that was founding something called the Gay Elder Circle, helping old gay men develop an elder consciousness, not an elderly consciousness, an elder consciousness. And what does that mean exactly? That means uh, that they have a role in society, contributing to society as an old person. Generally speaking, society is divided into youth, adults, elders, ancestors. Elders have a role to play. They don't disappear and become 
potted palms and palm springs. They have a role to play in society. And many old gay men are not stepping up to that responsibility. Adults are needy. We have missing adults in our community. They're either young or you're old. There's nothing in between. And if we don't have an adult generation around us, we don't have mentors for our young. But isn't that kind of true of at least American society as a whole, where we tend to segregate the old people and, and sort of infantilize them? We make sure they're active. and We pathologize them. There's something wrong with them and they need to be fixed or medicated or, or something like that, right? And most old people that I know, including myself, are very intellectually active, spiritually active, active in their community. We want to increase that. What do you think is specific to being an elder gay person? Well, first of all, we have a lifetime of experience. And that experience is something a younger gay person doesn't have. And so they need that help sometimes in blessing their gifts in terms of sharing what our experience was. Not telling them what to do, but just sharing our experience and listening to what their experience is. That's one of the roles of an elder. Although, I, for me personally... I, if I had to hang out with somebody under the age of 25, I would be exhausted after 20 minutes. Oh, that's just, not, it's well, true. Well, they, uh, they do get a little self-involved, but you know that's true with 40-year-olds, too. 40-year-old oh, sure. gay men and 60-year-old gay men. Sure. So there's a saying, an African saying, that goes like this. If elders are lost, adults will be lost. If adults are lost, youth will be lost. It puts the responsibility on the shoulders of elders, not on young people. Young people need guidance. They need someone to listen to them. They need to have their gifts blessed. But that's not happening in our community. Young people say to me, where can we find the elders? We can't find them. We need them, but we can't find them. Well, they're all in Palm Springs. Uh, many of them are. <laughs> or they've been discarded by our community. Yeah. Thrown into a trash can. Now, what can we do to sort of get the respect that we're not getting as elders? To get that respect, you have to do respectable things. And so the elders have to become visible, they have to take a role in society, and they have to do something. Not just sit around waiting for death and playing canasta. It's about really contributing something to the community. Young people want elders in their lives, yeah. but the elders uh, disappear. Again, because of the age apartheid. We're not communicating with each other across generations. Would young people really know what to do with an elder person these oh, days? They do. They do. They? do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They need I to talk. The right they need to share with us what's going on with them. Yeah. They need to ask sometimes if they need some help with something. But you can't find the elders. They disappear. It was a big thing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it was a big thing with the meeting. You're the co-host. Oh, your yeah. Job. No, I know. <laughs> it was a big thing with the meeting that it was an intergenerational audience, always. That we had 20-year-olds and 60- and 70-year-olds. Right. And that because we were talking about Grace Jones and you had seen people who loved her from the first wave and people who were just discovering her, the conversation started in a whole different way. And it is becoming, I think, I know a lot of younger people and I, I've even started doing the mentoring program at the LGBC Center. Oh. Where you can get involved with a young person and be there just to listen to them and to see what they're going through and kind of offer. Even, I'm only 35, but I, you know, I, it's a great program for me to kind of sit there and say, Okay, you're 20. What's going on? How's those bills hanging? You know, but I totally agree and, and totally think it is time to really engage elders and adults and really use the resources that we have while we have them. And speaking of the LGBT Center, how did the uh, birth of that come about? Uh, by your hand. One of the things that we realized with the Gay Liberation Front here, which was the forefront of gay liberation there in Los Angeles, was that there was no community. 
No community exists, and that might be hard for you to believe, but there simply was none. And we realized that if we were going to make a step forward, we couldn't spend all of our time reacting to our oppressors, because you can be in picket lines for the rest of your life, that we had to be proactive and create something. And what needed to be created was a community. And so the Gay Community Services Center, which is today the LA LGBT Center, was created as a vehicle around which a community could be organized, and it worked. Well, I'm well, sorry, but we've run out of time. Do you have a website? Or? Uh, no, I don't have any of that. I have a phone and a phone number. That's call the operator and you'll get my phone number. Call me. And it's spelled K-I-L-H-E-F-N-E-R. So thank you so much for coming and thank sharing you for it yourself. Oh. Thank you. And, and thank you for everything you've done. I know. My goodness. It wouldn't be the same really, world truly. without you. Now it's in your hands. Oh, my goodness. We're <laughs> all in trouble. Uh, good hands. Good okay. hands. Okay. That's it for tonight. I'm Frances O'Brien. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email Steve Pride at stevepride.com. And a reminder. We're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair, put my lipstick on In the glass of her wine There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect, baby So hold your head up and you don't go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God made no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Love yourself and be yourself and yourself on the right track Baby, I was born this way There ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way I'm beautiful in my way Cause God made no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way